What's up, guys? Welcome back to the City of Champions podcast. We're a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. This episode of the show is brought to you in part by the Alberta Blue Cross Wellness Summit, which happens on October 10th. The Wellness Summit is a day to explore fresh perspectives and practices around wellness. This year, the focus is on what it takes to create healthy workplace cultures where everybody thrives. Among the speakers is Drew Dudley, whose TEDx talk on everyday leadership has been viewed millions of times. You might know it as the Lollipop Moments talk. He reminds us that we all have the power to improve each other's lives. Alberta Blue Cross has designed the summit so that you're not just sitting and listening. You'll have a chance to actively engage with the information, the speakers, and other attendees, and we'll come away with practical tools and evidence-based resources you can use, whether you're a frontline worker or a C-suite executive. Summit is at the Renaissance Edmonton Airport Hotel on October 10th, and you can learn more at thewellnesssummit.ca. Okay, my guest this week is Edmonton Ward 3 City Councillor John Zadig, and he's a guy that brings a diverse wealth of experience to City Hall. Councillor Zadig is an author, urban planner, and he spent time as an intelligence officer in the military. He's a guy that actively pursues things that interest them, and it's inspiring to see that because I think that we spend too much time talking about what we'd like to or should do, and not enough time just actually doing those things. Uh, The counselor and I had a really great conversation. We talked about um, a lot. We discussed decision-making on city council. Uh, We talked about the extreme polarization of people's political views. We talked about the failings of group identities, and we also covered a little bit about homelessness and first responders in the city. Uh, So tons to cover in this one. Uh, Please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Councillor John Zadig. Councillor, thanks so much for joining me. I appreciate you uh, making the time. I'm glad to be here, Shane. Thank you. How's, uh, How's your summer going so far? Well, there's been a lot of changes in uh, the Zadik household. One, we just moved into a new house, so Congrats. It is, thank you, thank you. Uh, we're in Newcastle, and that's uh, the name that the developer gives, the, the gave the neighborhood. So, as a city councilor, I'm always struggling because the proper name is Rapper's Will, and I, mm-hmm. I sometimes don't know why we uh, let the developers control the naming for marketing reasons and with some of our neighborhoods. Um, when we've our naming committee has gone through the trouble of finding an appropriate name for the area, matching the theme with the surrounding neighborhoods, although Rappers Will maybe it's an interesting name to say the least. But it's exciting that we're uh, living there. But more importantly, we have a new addition to our family, our, our first daughter, our first child. So we have a, a four month old at home, and Amazing. that's been yeah, thank you. That's been consuming a lot of the summer as my wife and I both learn uh, how to be parents. Yeah, is the old <laughs> Re- saying true? Like you're never actually ready. Yeah, I would say so. We're and also, yeah, we're reaching into our uh, deep evolutionary biology to see what comes natural, and we yeah. just. But when the baby's smiling and the baby's fed and changed and happy and she's giggling now, it's just mm-hmm. is wonderful, and you know you're doing something right, and mm-hmm. it's uh, just about reprioritizing your life a little bit. For I'm sure. lucky that <clears throat> my wife and I were able to spend a fair amount of time together prior to having a kid, mm-hmm. uh, and we did some extensive traveling before I became a city councilor and. And uh, we had have had plenty of date nights and all that and been to some of Edmonton's best and worst restaurants, which are always a treat, and some of the dive bars to boot. Yeah. But now it's, uh, it's, there's a transition. So uh, we've gotten that all the way, and now our full attention's on uh, our daughter, Bridget. It's an interesting time to be raising a kid. I mean, I think, like, not that I have a kid. I'm 31 years old. But looking back, I think I'd much rather have had a kid born in the last couple of years versus a kid like 10 years ago just because of the evolution of technology and how things have changed so much. I mean, social media kind of blindsided us, right? Like we didn't we didn't know the negative effects of it. We didn't know how bad it was for people or how addictive it could have been or is. And, and so now I think people are a lot more cognizant of that. So I feel like kids born like in the last couple of years have a way better chance of being kind of safeguarded against some of the pitfalls of that. Now that being said, who knows what the next big thing is that's yeah, yeah. going to blindside you parents. <laughs> you can't predict the future, can you? Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Um, so just something you said about the neighborhood though, that's super interesting. So the, yeah. the city all obviously has its, its, um, its like, um, 
its legal name for a, for a certain area of the city. But then developers come in when they're building new communities, they'll slap their own name on it? Pretty much. And most of my constituents refer to the name that the developers gave the neighborhood. So uh, I have people saying they're from Newcastle, uh, Castlewood, Cherry Grove. Yeah. All these are names that are not official city of Edmonton names. Right. And of course, it's the one that's slapped up on the outside of the community. Yeah. It's yeah. a nice big like entrance into the community. Yeah. So that's that, that feature, yeah, that's put in by the developers. And I mean, they're motivated by by many reasons and not the least of which is marketing but city of edmonton names in many ways are for marketing reasons too it's or for a sense of community um but there are naming committee which i have a lot of respect for in part because they helped me get the canadian forces trail the honorary name to 97th street applied but i i know the level of rigor that they go through in in choosing names mm-hmm. and, and recommending well correction i was going to say recommend to council they used to do that but now that's it's a it's a, a function completely performed by the naming committee, which is populated by citizens, oh, okay. histor- local historians and the like. Interesting. So there's there's always a lot of meaning behind these names. It's not just willy-nilly, throw a dart at a board. And, and you know what? Yeah. <laughs> and I grew up in Ontario. And I don't like to talk about that too much because, well, <laughs> because I'm a politician. But I'm from, and I've lived in many different towns and cities and most streets and roads have a name associated with them. So you know where you're going based. If, if you don't know, the, like, oh, Maple Avenue, where's that? Oh, well, it's mm-hmm. near like, Spadina or something like that. And then you just figure out with your wayfinding. And, and of course, when I grew up there, it was before GPS and all that. But in Edmonton, with our grid system and our number system, which I think is amazing, mm-hmm. you can get along, uh, get around Edmonton much easier and understand an address. You can pinpoint it through coordinates just by understanding the address. But that really leaves... There's a lot of names that are, are not used that are used in other cities. So we have a lot of neighborhoods and those that's one way to reflect uh, local history. But mm-hmm. uh, in other cities that have named roads, they just they have a ton of names. So I think we, we have the duty to take the names that are uh, in Edmonton very seriously. So when a bridge is named after someone or a, an event or it's in a different language such as Cree, it's we don't have too many things to name so we take care to to do it properly i have to say that so there should be a level of respect for the names yeah i grew up in vancouver where it's you've got the avenues are are numbered and then all the streets are named so it's you know and it goes like i i didn't realize till i was older when you start thinking about these things but like you've got a bunch of names of trees in a row oh yeah arbutus and spruce and all that and then you've got the provinces that are right around the the separation between east and west vancouver yeah yeah And and it's i was like yeah, that makes sense. But then I moved to Edmonton about eight years ago. Yeah. And I was like, no, wh- why wouldn't any city use a grid system? It makes way more sense. Like, you yeah, tell me an address road, and I know where I know. that is. There, I really appreciate the grid system. And now we're talking about literally the streets going uh, north and south and avenues east and west. But in the newer areas with the curvilinear streets, mm-hmm. it sometimes gets confusing when a road segment will switch from a street to an avenue and back and or the number will be off right. by one or we have to correct it by having an a or a b as a suffix behind the <laughs> the name there's there's pros and cons yeah. and from an urban planning perspective there's a desire to break away from the grid system mm-hmm. so that you don't have traffic shortcutting through some of these neighborhoods but at the same time the convenience and the tradition of the grid system is something that uh, i'm happy uh, i support and i've lived in grid system neighborhoods in edmonton but currently in ward three it's mostly these curvilinear uh, neighborhoods right yeah I was gonna say so as an you know you have an urban planning background yeah. obviously it, are these the kind of intricacies that you enjoy tackling or, or do you like looking at the bigger picture that's a good question I ideally as a counselor I like it when I can solve really specific issues that don't even have to come before council if someone wants a stop sign put up at an intersection that they deem to be dangerous mm-hmm. I can ask our city administration to evaluate if a stop signs required in and then typically, if, you know, if it comes to me, like it's, it, it is required. So then it's, I'm able to push forward and get small little things like that out, out of the way or mm-hmm. uh, uh, just attention to detail in terms of neighborhood cleanliness and, uh, and repair. Mm-hmm. So I like doing those small little things. But, but in many ways, the role of the counselor is to be much more, is to be a visionary for the city with the rest of council. So we're, we're a body of 13 uh, individuals and uh, we employ many many people in the city of Edmonton who are subject matter experts in every aspect of business that the city encounters. So we have our whole planning department. And uh, I've tried not to, you know, while I have my opinions, I try and reflect 
what my constituents want. And uh, from a planning perspective, I'm not always completely in harmony with what our, our planners are putting forward, but they're the ones attending the community consultations in their own way. I have my own consultations with my constituents. So uh, it, is an inter- it, it is interesting that I'm a planner and we deal with a lot of planning. So I'll say that right off the bat. Um, secondly, what's interesting about planning and, and a bit frustrating is there's no right answer. But I think that's a good thing. That's a good aspect to the, to the profession. No, and I con- there's no right answer. You mean it's just about weighing qualitatively what's better than another answer? Mm-hmm. Like, I'd say there's trends in urban planning. There's different options, and and then you'll get different outcomes. So, if we choose to build an LRT on, uh, say, Stony Plain Road, that's going to have a different development pattern than if we chose 107th Avenue. Uh, 107th Avenue doesn't currently have existing uh, development rate up to it that would be considered transit oriented right um, but if you go down stony plain you're going to encounter a little bit more expropriation right now but you already have a, a ridership built up there so you would get more immediate return versus if you took a different route um, that's so when i say there's no right answer with urban planning i just mean we don't there's so many variables we try and factor in as much as we can it's not like a hard science like engineering where Hopefully there is a right answer. Hope like <laughs> you pour this. Does much... the building fall down or not? Yeah, there exactly. So uh, yeah, and then I don't know how often engineers argue against amongst each other about uh, the appropriateness of certain infrastructure projects. Mm-hmm. They, of course, everyone's opinionated, but when it gets down to just straight project management, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way, and they strive to be efficient. Um, but with urban planning, it's you know you'll have people pushing for more bike lanes, and that's very much a planning issue. Then you'll have people uh, recalling, calling for a bit more restraint, mm-hmm. and that's their prerogative. And from a planning perspective, there's really no right answer. Although I would suggest uh, that all the planning should be in conformance with the plans passed by the municipality, and that's where so the marching orders for our planners come mm-hmm. from council. Mm-hmm. And many of these documents actually were passed before I was on council, but. Right, yeah, you need your sort of overwhelming mission statement or overbearing mission statement, and then every decision kind of falls in off, you know, in line with that, right? Yes. I'm always amazed at how city council triages every single issue that comes to it, right? I mean, you've got, you've got whatever, about a million people in Edmonton, and you know, a lot of people have things that they want fixed or, you know, and so how do you, how do you look at everything that needs to be done and then start start deciding okay what do we tackle first and like what's going to be the most benefit to the most people or what's the most pressing issue um and then there's the optics factor too it's like well this looks really bad if we don't tackle this right away like mm-hmm. what goes into those decisions well a lot of it's controlled with how our agendas are populated and um <clears throat> And, and some councillors, the, the chairs of the committees, the mayor, they can have, have some asset, some ability to influence what's coming before council. But for me, uh, I debate the issues as they come before us, and then I strive to do stuff in my ward that doesn't need uh, council support, uh, such as the soccer festival I put on uh, for two years in a row, top of the city, where we played around the clock, and mm-hmm. can talk more about that later if you want. But that's something that that met my objective of doing something substantial for the north side and mm-hmm. my hope is just that it will grow more um but as for the issues that come before council i've thought about that too um some of our really expensive capital projects that are in the hundreds of millions of dollars are great and they address civic needs but if you have a hundred million dollars or two hundred million dollars as the case may be how many potholes could that fix and i, I know potholes are sort of just a superficial issue but mm-hmm. i think it's it should be a core competency of a city to take care of its roads mm-hmm. and parks. Um, so just from a trade-off perspective, if we, you know, if we are playing around with hundreds of millions of dollars and we can get either one big ticket item, I'm always curious to know how many of the smaller ticket mm-hmm. items we could get and would that provide from a utility perspective more, uh, more happiness? I, I don't know. Well, presumably there'd be a, a you know, a, a quantitative calculation that you could do, right? How many dollars, you know, how many man hours saved by moving people across the city faster versus how many dollars, and what does that equate to, you know, money-wise versus um, how much it costs to fix the potholes and then and then have people, A, saving time from not having their cars broken down, wheels breaking down, whatever else the potholes impact. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's got to be an analysis of that now, of course, way above my uh, quantitative capabilities, yeah, yeah. but I, well, I, I would... also just think that you know, I think everything is possible, and I just think it's a matter of the people who are able to do it getting it done. I yes, I agree, and 
it'd be interesting to see those numbers, but I'd also suggest that there's a qualitative aspect to it uh, from a matter of civic pride mm-hmm. and for people to see where the tax dollars are being spent. Mm-hmm. So if you don't go downtown on the daily, if you live in the suburbs uh, and you take care of your own lawn and you do what you can to fix up your house, but then as soon as you walk onto the city sidewalk, your first encounter, there's cracks in it and yeah. weeds are growing out of it. And then you notice on the road there's potholes and big cracks everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then you drive uh, down one of the boulevards and then there's what you assume are a bunch of weeds, even though we're naturalizing some of our <laughs> boulevards. Um, some of them don't look, they're not manicured like they used to be. So right. then you're kind of just thinking like, where's my money going for it? And the taxes yeah. keep going up. So it's great that stuff's happening in other parts of the city and we have some uh, first class facilities here. But that value of, well, what's the the disrepair in some of our neighborhoods Mm -hmm. is alarming to some citizens and it goes back to that neighborhood pride that I try and foster and and that's even back to what I was talking about with neighborhood names and sense of identity I want people in the spirit of complete communities people in my opinion should be able to conduct most of their business within a you know a a diameter of I'm not going to just randomly pick out a a number, but within a few kilometers, I would say you Mm -hmm. should be able to, you know, go to the gym, go to the grocery store, get a coffee, do dry cleaning, have a good restaurant to go to, have a park. Um, And then to the extent that areas are are known by their local names and that there's a pride, there's pride in them. And if the city is taking care of its own property, Mm -hmm. hopefully uh, that would encourage people then to not cause graffiti like you know no you're less likely to vandalize an area that's broken well kept theory, exactly yeah. yeah i love broken windows theory yeah. it just explains so much about human nature yeah absolutely so so i would say that patching up potholes is more than just sort of appeasing quote-unquote like the angry driver mm-hmm. who's just it's about a little bit about like cleaning up your room like cleaning up your space around you to make everything else kind of more, yeah more organized and orderly um, so earlier you said that you, you what, the things that you do are meant to serve your constituents, obviously. Um, where does where does the interplay between what they want and what you know might be better for them than what they think they want? Where does that interplay come in? I'll, I'll give you a quick example, mm-hmm. but like, I, I don't know if this is still relevant. This is one that came about when I was uh, back in university, but talking about bike lanes and cities, they said, well, actually, if you take out a lane of traffic in some areas to put a bike lane in, even though you're down to one lane of traffic, it actually um, economizes the movement speed of the vehicles because you don't have people switching lanes all the time. Okay. So that was one example of like, that. there's a counterintuitive thing where everyone, you know, people in that neighborhood would think, oh, we don't want more bike lanes because it's going to slow down traffic. But you, as a counselor, might have the information, the higher level academic like uh, research papers on that to show, like, actually, it's not going to, or, or at least all the studies show that it's probably not going to. So, you know, how, how does that interplay between what they want and what you know is probably the right thing? Coming yeah, it's, no, it's a good question. <laughs> and it's, that was a long, a, convoluted way to ask it. but No, that's good. No, I've been having long, convoluted answers to your question. So it's your turn for a long, <laughs> convoluted question. No, you make a great point, and I think that's the the role of the politicians to figure that out. And as much as I try and be a mirror of my constituents' concerns, uh, if I did that, there would be no leadership or visionary component to it. So that's really the rub. Like, are we? Am I trying to respond to the citizens that elected me right now, or am I trying to look out for the best interests of their children? Mm-hmm. I would like to argue that I'm doing both, um, but it it is sort of that short-term payoff versus long-term. Uh, I'm hesitant to bring this up, but I'll, I'll go here just because it's been controversial, but with calcium chloride, mm. um, I've been against the use of that product because it, while it, uh, the numbers suggest that it's cheaper for the city to apply it, it being effective for snow removal for your listeners that, that don't fully understand what that is. It's a, a brine product that's put on the roads prior to snow events. And traditionally it has not been used in Edmonton and it's been used recently. Mm-hmm. And then, residents are contacting me saying that the bottoms of their car are rusting and corroding and their garage right. floors are corroding. You being from Vancouver, I think Vancouver uses it. Uh, Ontario uses it. Once every four years when there's snow. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. So, so is that the same as quote unquote salting the roads? Is that like... It's, yeah, I mean, it's a salt product and yeah. it's, it's typically because of our temperatures, we've used, we've relied more on gravel. Mm-hmm. Um, a gravel product and of course everything's mixed together and there's a lot of chemistry behind all this. Uh, but the, the bottom line is it's the calcium chloride 
is an example of an application of a product that we haven't traditionally used. Mm-hmm. Saves the city money, but downloads the cost onto residents. Right. Or so the residents say. And I'm not doubting people. Um, and I see evidence with my own eyes, and I uh, see photos before and after uh, of people's garage floors and their vehicles. But our city administration will argue, and I'm not trying to put words in their mouth, it's coming before council uh, again, so I mean, they'll have their opportunity to present their case again, but we did a pilot project, and more or less, it seems like the city is saying, like, let's continue mm-hmm. with doing this, it's going to save the city money. Um, my constituents are really against it, and that's been the, so I've adopted that position right now to your question about sort of short-term long-term or like if unintended consequences or you know just the byproduct of decisions I the where I fall short with the this product because I know so many other jurisdictions use it including the province and it's been used on the Hende since the Hende has been right at least for several years so the you have the pro- provincial fleet of trucks and all that that are apparently not being corroded in their garage floors and their uh in their garages are apparently fine, although the, I do also hear that they power wash them down all the time, which is right. something that wouldn't be done in a residential garage. It's, it is a, I'll tell you it's difficult because when our city administration is more or less opting for the use of this product and saying that it's going to save the taxpayer money, mm-hmm. um, that's compelling. Mm-hmm. One, is compelling because it's going to save money, and two, it's our administration saying that. And my default position is not to question them, although that comes up all the time constantly questioning the information brought forward but I know it's brought forward in good faith Mm -hmm. uh, with integrity Mm -hmm. and by subject matter experts that's the other if I just for a quick second uh, the counselor is a generalist in in many ways and whenever there's an issue brought before us it's brought forward by people that have spent their career in a certain field so when we're talking about something like this we have chemists and and people that grown up uh, patching uh, potholes and work their way up to foreman and then manager of fleets of trucks uh, just a ton of different people that live breathe and sleep this stuff and they know what's happening in different jurisdictions and they go to conferences and the, about road maintenance and all that and uh, I have no history or background in road maintenance so I'm presented with information I have to trust that it's uh, accurate and that's really yeah you'll go okay the long answer to you yeah no no no. it makes it makes total sense right like you have to stand on the shoulder of giants in order to make the decisions because you know what good is it to have a counselor who knows everything there is to know about road maintenance at the expense of not knowing anything else right you're Mm -hmm. better better off to be a generalist in that sense um yeah that's a convoluted one and i as someone who doesn't have a car right now it doesn't make a difference to me one way or another but i can see the frustration of people in their homes going a my garage is dirty or b my car seems to be falling apart and unfortunately because that's spread out against you know amongst the general population it's much harder to quantify than the city just going hey here's our budget for the year and here's how much we say because of that boom one number all in one place right yeah the the the, the other factors of it are, are too too spread out and too sparse to really take into account um yeah i don't know i i don't i i, I don't envy that <laughs> position that you're in but but i mean it makes sense based you got to listen to the experts and you got to balance what mm-hmm. the people say um now now you mentioned generalists and that's interesting because you specifically you've got kind of a range of interests it seems you've got you know your your uh, sort of academic sort of planning background. Mm-hmm. You've got your uh, sort of physical military background, and then you've got your creative writing background. Mm-hmm. So you kind of bring these three facets of life together. Like, how did that? How did those interests kind of kind of come together? Well, I mean, it's just who I am as a person, and I think that no person is just black and white onto like a military person <coughs> isn't all just into you know guns and camping and everything that's associated i mean i'm just yeah. stereotyping obviously sure. but my point is to disprove this to uh, address some stereotypes <coughs> i've just been very active in my own life with pursuing my interests so if there's something that i want to do i put my name forward and i try and do it mm-hmm. um like i'm also you know I, i'd like to build stuff at home out of wood i don't know what i'm doing but you buy some of the right tools and you yeah. find out what angles to cut the wood at and you kind of glue and nail it together and before you know it, you have something that looks like a, I don't know, like a shelf or something. Do you have anything in here? Uh, no, no, I don't. Not here. But I, in my new house I just moved into, I've already built some uh, shelving un- yeah. units in the garage and mm-hmm. um, and it just painted the garage. All my neighbors keep it. Like, you know, a new garage is just uh, 
has the fire tape on it so it's just like exposed drywall yeah. and um, I know a little bit about mudding so I just did a quick little job in there and then I just I bought some mistinted paint from the hardware store a good way to reuse a, a product that might otherwise be thrown out and just slapped up a coat of paint and it looks I would say much nicer than all the other unfinished garages uh, I just like doing stuff with my hands yeah but to your question uh, why well, so I got I was always interested in the military a little bit but I wanted to pursue more of a office job uh, which is why I went to school for planning and then I came to Edmonton as a, to work as a planner mm-hmm. uh, in 2007 help here yeah you know that was <laughs> the irony is that at that time there was no accredited planning schools in Edmonton mm-hmm. and so all the planners that were working in Edmonton Calgary sorry when I say Edmonton I actually meant Alberta mm-hmm. there so all the planners pretty much came from somewhere else or they're locals that went somewhere else for school and came back um and so i i fell within that group of coming here and i had trouble meeting people when i first got here just it's a bit different when you you come for work versus i was always like kind of you know moving around for school or other other things where you're part of a, a group of some sort so uh but when you're just you know you just arrive in a, a city and you're in your mid twenties. I, I found it a bit more difficult. And this is before, like, even though social media was around, then there wasn't really all these groups where like you could join this book club or, or this whatever just by yeah. typing in very specific interests. Yeah. Um, you'd have to hunt that stuff out a bit more. But I was always interested in joining the military, and I thought that was an opportunity that passed by. But. Um, I had a boss that was supportive at the time with a, at a previous job who spent a career as a reserve infantry officer and he uh, spoke very highly of his time, um, of the professionalism of the military and everything that he learned mm-hmm. uh, with all his training and then his the work that he did. He was doing some stuff with, uh, with uh, NATO in Eastern Europe and he was a teacher during that, like in an earlier part of his career so he would spend the summers in Eastern Europe. And I said, okay, well, I'm interested in joining the Navy. And he, it was very nice that he uh, said that if I wanted to apply, he would give me the time off of basic training because mm-hmm. that's usually the big hiccup. Um, I have a lot of friends and acquaintances now that, that know that I'm in the military are quite interested in joining, thinking like, oh, I thought that was for a younger, younger folk. But if you joined when you were, you know, in your late 20s, um, maybe I could do that. And then the first thing I say is like, can you get four months off for basic training? Right. And then usually the answer is no, because they're worried about their employment. Do you get paid for that basic training? Yeah, you do. Okay. So it's, and you get your food and board. So right. it's, yeah, it, you know, and a lot of people sort of make, I know a lot of people that talk about how low the, let me just say like, <laughs> I think it's a decent income that you make as a reservist, but more importantly, the the training is invaluable. The, some of the life skills that you get taught yeah, uh, in a high stress, high stress, lack lack of sleep deprivation For environment, sure. um, and yeah. you're taught a lot about personal care, how to take care of yourself, and then take care of your your uh, coworkers or fire team partners, as being a more military term. Well, it's so important that certain countries make mandatory military service at 18, right, for one or two years. And a good example of, you know, like obviously Israel does it, but that makes sense because they're surrounded by enemies. But but a country like Finland also does it, right? And you wouldn't think that Finland's in a whole ton of uh, controversy. There is Russia right there. Yeah, yeah there's yeah. Russia and uh, Karyla and they're, they're sold. But they're more like... The people in that part of Finland are actually more Russian than Finnish, and the Russian people in that part are more Finnish than Russian. It's this really cool blend of culture up there. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's just really interesting, and and I've talked to some Finnish buddies about it, and yeah, and they're all you know as much as it sucked at the time for some of them, they said like yeah, absolutely, I would think that every country should do that, and I think like in you know in society now like life is so easy relatively speaking, right? Like there's there's not a ton of stuff that you're coming up against. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, I mean, I granted there's you know disenfranchised populations that have you know systemic struggles and, and everyone's situation is different. But I mean, for the most part, no one in Canada is is worried about getting killed on the street or, or you know not having a shelter over their head or, or mm-hmm. you know food to eat. There, there's places to go for that, you know. So so I think a little bit of adversity and 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 confrontation and um, you know some obstacles is a good thing for everyone. Yeah, I agree too. And first of all, I'm just thankful that we don't have mandatory military service. But that just speaks to uh, our international friends, our the allegiances that we're a part of, um, our geography, and we're kind of 
lucky over here, but it's important to take uh, issues of national security seriously. Mm-hmm. And also, it's a good, what I like about being in the military too, it's a good outlet for patriotism. Um, and I would, I've met really good friends through the military, and I gotta say that the diversity within the, the ranks is amazing. Uh, just people from all different walks of life and different opinions and uh, any kind of stereotypes of the military have been completely smashed since, uh, that, that I held previously since joining. Um, there's, on the political spectrum, there's people voting in every which way you can mm-hmm. imagine. Uh, and that's what's nice about Canada is there's, you're not going to be told to shut up or anything. If you're in uniform, you're not you know, if, say if the Liberals are uh, the federal government as they are, and if you're in uniform, you shouldn't be talking about the Conservatives or the NDP. But right. when you have that uniform off, you can help whoever you want. Uh, and that's that's something that's quite nice is the freedoms that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just a ton of different patriotic Canadians that join for a variety of reasons, um, coming together to advance the interests of the country. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, what, was, what was the... The Canadian identity to you and your sort of cohort when you were, you know, when you were going through training and when you were actively participating in the military, because it seems that like it seems that we really struggle with what is our Canadian identity. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to be Canadian? Well, it's inter- the military emphasizes our links to the monarchy um, because that's our head of state, Queen Elizabeth II, and you know, there's a lot of in a lot, a lot of military emblems. There's r- royal. Um, symbols and all that so when we were doing push-ups and basic training like say they were asked to do 20 push-ups or whatever the drill sergeant asked we'd always do one more for the queen so that was always like a little bit of a joke um and then of course when we have our formal dinners we have a toast the loyal toast to the queen Mm um so i i enjoy that aspect of it and i wasn't much of a monarchist before like ultimately you know I, i i see a path for canada being a republic although i'm i'm a monarchist uh but do we need a head of state outside of Canada? I, I don't know, because the Queen is, as much as she's the Queen of England, she's also the Queen of Canada. Mm-hmm. It's just, it, our system of government is set up in this manner. Um, and I do like the, a symbolic head of state who deals with non-political issues, for the most part, and then having a prime minister that's uh, hyper-political, as, as is per our election system. Right, um, so that's the governor general that you're speaking of, the representative? Yeah, yeah. like I'm, I'd always be in favor of, of something like that, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm quite, and as much as my last name, it's a Ukrainian last name, Zadik, uh, on my mom's side is, uh, she's English, Irish, and Scottish, and mm-hmm. her maiden name is Cook, so as much as I'm John Zadik now, and you know, just by convention, I could very well be John Cook, which right. would sound very Anglo, and, and uh, be just, I'd probably have a different experience uh, having a different last name because that's a whole other topic that we could get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of uh, my experience with uh, other military members just being patriotic, yeah, they could, we, the military very much values symbols and saluting the flag and all that kind of stuff. So, But what did it mean to you to be a Canadian? Like it, the, the easy comparable is, you know, you watch the, yeah. the U.S. you know, our U.S. war movies and, you know, Americans are about freedom and independence yeah. and, you know, um, free speech and all, all yeah. you know, all those things. But Canadians, like it seems like if you ask the average Canadian what our national identity is, it's like, well, we're overly polite and we really like our hockey and... And, you know, we're, if you know the answer, that's the million dollar question. I yeah. think we've been struggling. What would you say a Canadian is? Because it's it's got to be more something than not American and not British. What's tough because we're such a such a diverse geography, as you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, right? Like, like for a Canadian in Edmonton or Calgary, anyone in Alberta, really, like we're hardy, right? Like we go through really tough winters, and that's what breeds this really great community of people in Edmonton. And tough summers too. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. Apparently, yeah, we don't get any reprieve from shitty weather. But, yeah. um, but you know, someone in Vancouver is you know living in one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and things are good, and maybe it's rainy for half the year, but really it's still warm, and like yeah. never like never buckled down in minus 40 being like I might freeze to death like that's never an option that's never a thought that crosses yeah, your mind yeah exactly yeah um, and then you know Ontario is different because it's far more politicized than most of the rest of Canada because it's right in the center of it all and, and Quebec's its own beast right like we're such a disparate population of people you know the, the new fees are practically Irish like it's yeah, just yeah. you know it, it, it's so separate but uh, you know the one thing I could say to what it means to be Canadian is to be you know friendly 
and to be, you know, um, open-minded too. Would to, you would you say that? Oh, well, I think that there was a time for sure, but I think that's changing. I think with political polarization, people are getting far more um, ideologically based and, and stuck in their ways. And I think, you know, free speech is in a little bit of danger right now because people are saying there's things that you can say that are no longer okay to say. It's like that's never been the case in, yeah, in, in British civil rule, right? Like, mm-hmm. so yeah, I don't know. Well, <clears throat> yeah, there was a lot there. I would I would say I support uh, absolute freedom of speech, uh, even though it brings some difficulties. But I'd say to the Canadian identity issue, we are like right now. I think that we've never been more divided than we have been within the Confederation. But then. Obviously, there was two referendums on separation for Quebec, which was sort of before I was really aware of what was going on. I was in in junior high or something during Mm -hmm. the last one. So this has been an issue for a while. And and now just our our recognition that we haven't done enough uh, for our indigenous populations, although, of course, people have known that for decades, but that's in the forefront. And then um, self-determination of provinces, say, with uh, energy harnessing and resource development, well, parts of the Confederation are, are not on board with what other parts are on board with. And there's this sort of holding uh, different provinces hostage by just by the nature of the geography, the isolation of Alberta, the mm-hmm. need for to, to transport products. What I would say, bringing it back to why I like being a city councillor, is I'm not a part of a political party. Right. And we're 13 independents. And... Uh, that means we, we have 13 different opinions. That also means we can all agree on the same issue and nothing's holding us to be... It's, it's, just, it's not inherently adversarial mm-hmm. as uh, the provincial and federal governments are designed to be. Mm-hmm. So it's at the council level, it's quite unique. Um, but just from a national perspective right now, I am a bit worried that this rhetoric is getting stronger. Social media is you know, fairly poisonous, in, in my opinion, and when it comes to debating. I think earlier adopters of social media had more dialogue with mm-hmm. opponents now it's just about trying to get people and be more witty and yeah and, it's about winning the yeah. argument it's not about it's not about coming to an agreement or coming to a synthesis of knowledge it's about winning and scoring those points putting them up on the board and be like i beat this person right yeah and what's up with that that doesn't help anyone because mm-hmm. it's incredibly unlikely that any individual like oh, oh, all the opinions that are out there maybe one person's right about mm-hmm. each topic but it's not the same person all the time yeah. so if you have an opinion about bike lanes chances are that you're either too far to one side or another then really what would be the objective truth if you could even find the objective truth as into whatever criteria you're measuring like in terms of like for Edmonton like getting people around reducing carbon emissions all this stuff if you had some really strong criteria um, you could vet all the different opinions on how to get there and um, the the fact is, no one derives these like a correct answer on their own. We have to recognize that you have to listen to your opponents, uh, and not just uh, reaffirming your position by listening to someone that's already saying the same thing as you, and then thinking, "Aha, that's yeah, that's I right. knew it. That person agrees yeah. agrees with me. Therefore, we're both right." Yeah, no, you need you need those varying opinions, and and it's. It's hard because we all bring our own, you know, biases and preconceived notions to any dialogue. But at the end of the day, and I forget what religion or philosophy this is a mantra, but we're all the same. Like we're all we're all each other. So like if you know if I get into an argument with someone in my workplace and I beat them down intellectually into submission and I win, well, yeah, I might have won, but that's not really good for either of us because because. Then that person, if I win, that person's a loser. And, yeah. then, and then I work with a loser. And do I want to be working with losers? Probably not. So I'm, I would probably be better off in the long term to try and come to a, you know, a, an yeah. agreement. I, I completely agree. That's great life advice. And I can see a translation to relationship advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're arguing with your wife or husband or uh, however the case may be, if, if it's a trivial argument or a serious argument, either way, what what do you gain by putting them down at like you have to live with each other yeah and you're gonna be right some of the time and you're gonna be wrong some of the time to be so opinionated and rub it in their face or be like aha i told you i was right or like you're always wrong or you're always an idiot you're always this it's like okay you're 
sign some kind of contract to live together for presumably for your whole life, try and get along and don't one up someone, recognize we're all in this together and everyone has the same common, like generally people want the same outcome. So in a relationship it's to for happiness and love. Live harmoniously and, and exactly. lovingly, right? And have a good time and not be stressed. Yeah. And what's interesting about politics, uh, just to take, and what's good about being, again, a counselor is like I'm not on, you know, officially on the left or the right uh, because I'm an independent. But I think if you ask conservatives or liberals or progressive people what they want, say like a city a hundred years from now, mm-hmm. they're probably going to be describing the same outcome. You know, like mm-hmm. there's prosperity, there's clean air. Yeah. People can get around. People are happy. And uh, it's just, how do you get there? So there's different approaches at the more tactical, immediate level, which mm-hmm. is where politics hits the road. Right. But I mean, the, we can all say we want the same things, but is that it can be disingenuous when it comes to certain groups of people, right? Like, yeah, I want everyone to be equal, but I want to be a little bit more equal than everyone else. I want to carve out a little bit more for myself in terms of, you know, financial gain. Um, and then, you know, it like... Like what the what the environmentalists would say, you know, against the against the people on the right in terms of uh, you know global and, and GDP development and kind of sacrificing a little bit of a little bit of the um, environment for a little bit of the economy. It's it's like well, they would say that they would say that look like we want the same things. You guys are saying that you're not harming the environment, but like maybe you know that you are, but you're just saying that you're not and you're saying that we want the same thing still, right? Like how do you really know people's true intention and you know um, emotions as well? So it's 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 really hard. Like it, it seems weird that we should ever have disagreements because we all kind of want the same things, but it's the dishonesty and and in people inherently that I think causes all the friction in all relationships. Yeah, and it's it's a balance of self-interest and community interest. And I'd ask you, you don't have to answer, but if you're, just as a hypothetical, if you're voting, are you voting in your self-interest or the community's best interest? Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people say if you're in healthcare and then you're all like, okay, the UCP is going to likely slash some of that. So that's going to affect me personally and I my goal is to put bread on the table at home. So mm-hmm. I'm going to vote against the UCP, even though I might like their uh, position for the province as a whole. It's like, really, I just, if I'm out of work, then then, uh, that's terrible. It's a a great question. Yeah, so that's very self-interested versus sort of like the the direction. And and I think, yeah, I mean, there's a whole debate about how you, like, yeah, I I mean, it's a tough question. I... You know, I like to think that I would vote for with with vision for the candidate that has the best vision. Mm-hmm. Um, but if my livelihood's jeopardized, then that uh, would be a consideration. And and I use that just as a, a small example, like a microcosm of sort of broadly what you're talking about, sort of a self-interest. Like, are you trying to get a bit more for yourself? Yeah. Um, it is sort of entrenched in our, our value system to, to fight through competition. Uh, I just think that we always have to be very conscious to not to look out for our vulnerable people mm-hmm. and do what we can to prop them up. I very much take a position of equal opportunity. Um, that doesn't mean that no government intervention is required to bring up groups that have been marginalized uh, historically or currently. Um, I'm in favor of that kind of approach, but generally uh, I'm not for quotas or anything like that. I'm for uh, removing barriers so that anyone that, say if you have uh, a real drive to, to push yourself in the, a certain direction, you can uh, you have a realistic chance of succeeding based on your own merit and the support of your community mm-hmm. versus um, just getting it for, for other reasons. Right. And, uh, you know, there's, there's when it comes to voting for your self-interest or voting for the social good, sometimes those get co- conflated too, right? Like because, you know, you reach a certain, as an individual or a family, say you reach a certain level where you, you, all your basic needs are met. So I can understand a position of voting for your self-interest if you're below that level. If you're like, look, I don't really care about... It's like it's like developing nations. They don't care about the environment because they're worried about finding a place to sleep and getting food. Like, yeah. It doesn't matter if I have clean air. If I have nothing to eat, I'm dead. Yeah. So once you get to that base level of existence, then you can start thinking, okay, how do we impact more people socially and, and, and in a good way? 
But you know, then it becomes the age-old question: Should we be looking at propping up groups of people or individuals, mm-hmm. right? And are we better off to to make the individuals stronger within those groups? What I like about trying to make the individuals stronger is then there's uh, role models within the communities mm-hmm. that comprise uh, groups. But more so, I can't get past the fundamental thing that all people of a group. Uh, do not think alike. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking about whole groups, there's this, an assumption that, you know, everyone from group X is going to vote this way just because blah. Yeah. Or, you know, and there's so many ways that we can subdivide ourselves up. And obviously the the ones that uh, come to the forefront are like age, sex, gender, all that. Uh, but for people that share the same characteristics as me, you know, they don't share the same personality as me. For you and I, look, look at you and I. From the outside... We mm-hmm. would appear to be the exact same, right? You're just a bit white, taller. <laughs> white, male, about the same age, both Canadian, like yeah. from Canada, like though we have slightly different like historical backgrounds, like but someone would look at us and go like, oh, those two people are the same. Yeah, and what a disservice I would be to to intellectual thought. Yeah, like, and then it's like, oh, and then you're gonna want a turkey sandwich because like people like you want that, so then everyone like this, <laughs> like let's feed that. It's yeah. just. There's only these broad generalizations. Mustard, of, white people love mustard. Yeah, mustard. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so if you can see how that doesn't work for your own group, mm-hmm. why would you think it would work for other groups? Mm-hmm. So if you can see how, like as, as a white male, like there's, a, you know, I, I the, the, there could be an argument that I have more in common with other white males than I have not in common with them. Like, mm-hmm. but from a personality perspective, from a political perspective, there's such diversity of, of thought mm-hmm. that if I see this difference in my group, why would I think that everyone from a different group would be similar right. uh, to each other? Yeah, or like, for example, you know, you could have been raised, you know, in a First Nations community, even though you're white, like, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. There is an example from my life. So I grew up in Vancouver, right? Yeah. Huge Chinese population. A lot, like, a lot of my best friends growing up were Chinese. So when I moved out to Alberta and I spent a couple years in Ontario going to school, yeah. like I'd meet Chinese guys who were born in Canada. Their parents were born in Canada. So like I would know Chinese culture more than them. Oh, but interesting. From, but yeah. from the outside, they look at the white guy. And actually, it's funny. Like when we, I went to China back in 2018. Yeah. And the way it works there, traditional restaurants is one person will order for the table, right? They're kind of the patriarchal, like I'll take care of this all and, okay. and do everyone's order. So we were there with a, a group of white guys and my one buddy from Vancouver is Chinese. Now he speaks Cantonese and not Mandarin. Okay. Uh, and in mainland China, they only speak Mandarin and it may as well be the difference between French and Mongolian, right? Like okay. They're so different. There's no overlap. It's not like, it's not like Spanish and Italian. You can kind yeah, of, okay, gotcha. the, you know, okay. so they would always look to my, my Chinese buddy and, and talk, speak to him in Mandarin and he would kind of shake his head like sheepishly and go, I don't, sorry, I don't speak Mandarin. And then there was one gruff-looking white guy that we were with, and he spoke Mandarin. Okay. So he would speak up and be like, I'm ordering for the table. And they'd look at him, shake their head, and then look back to the Chinese guy. Yeah. But there's a great example of like, all right, who, does, who do the mainland Chinese uh, individuals have more in common with? The Chinese descendant guy or this guy that's been in their country for 10 years that learned Mandarin? Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, when you, when you frame it like that, I don't see how we can look at any group of people other than the individuals within that group yeah and I think it's laziness and it's stereotyping at, mm-hmm. at the root of it is to suggest that and then that comes to community solutions uh, as a politician we try and solve local issues mm-hmm. uh, and uh, to say that the whole homeless population for example requires you know some mental health support or addiction support I mean it, it'd be wise to have government programs that that address those uh, aspects of homelessness, but there's so much more to it. Anyone could be, you know, a lot of people are a few paychecks away from becoming homeless. Uh, actually, I spent some time in the Yukon, and I'm just thinking about this for just kind of a bit of a digression, but there's a, a lot of journeymen cook up cooks up there. I was working in little hotels and all that, mm-hmm. and uh, one guy. You know, and people that are cooks are this is stereotyping a bit, but they're they got some aggression issues. There's a reason they're, they're not working in front of the house. Yeah, <laughs> I could say that because I work in the service industry. Oh, do you? Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. Um, but yeah, this this one guy, his whole family died in a car accident like ten Jeez. years earlier, and then he's just like, well, like, and he was an accountant or or something in down south, as they say uh, when you're in the territories, 
And then it's just like, so he decided to just go up and he liked cooking and he's just going from remote little town to remote little town and around there. And it's just sort of, you don't know how people got to where they are. And, um, and for any kind of, and I'm not trying to conflate the homelessness with uh, someone that's, that's a journeyman cook, obviously, but it's just sort of, I remember that being a bit eye opening and I'm sure, uh, I've talked with many homeless people through, uh, I've volunteered at soup kitchens and all that. And. You know, actually, there's a lot of homeless vets, and that's something that mm-hmm. we're trying to address through the through a few different initiatives. But it's just you don't know their story, mm-hmm. and there could have had tragedy in their family, and uh, they just weren't able to make ends meet. Yeah. And they they might not have addiction issues. They might have addiction issues as a result of hard living on the street. Mm-hmm. Uh, and p- the human body is so resilient that people right now like there's always opportunity to bring people, fold them back into the mainstream and, and from a dignity perspective, get them back working again and, uh, and providing for themselves to the best that they can. There's so many approaches to our issues. And my overarching point is just don't assume that there's one solution for everyone and really yeah. respect the individual. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Um, do you know Chance Burles? No. No? So he, I think he organizes the, he's a veteran, he organizes oh. the Walk for Vets. Oh, okay. Vets Canada? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I've done that for a few years and uh, I, I didn't catch his name. So yeah. there's that. There's also the Homes for Heroes um, development that's happening in my ward that I'm quite supportive of. Mm-hmm. Although uh, recently uh, a few of the neighbors in, in the Evansdale neighborhood, actually several of them have been reaching out saying like, uh, we don't want this here. What is it? It's, that they don't yeah. Want? Very innovative. Um it's uh, tiny homes yeah. for homeless veterans that are suffering from PTSD. Okay. So tiny, like sort of, so ACO is, is uh, building these little structures. Sort of like laneway housing? No, it's in a little orphan piece of land off of 153rd Avenue. So this municipal land is not being well used. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be just centrally planned. There's 20 homes. So it takes up, I think it's only like an acre or wow. so of land. And then there's, there'd be, it's in partnership with the mustard seed as well. And there'd be a dedicated, um, uh, someone that can speak to mental health on site. And it's a rehabilitation program. The idea is to get these homeless veterans into these tiny homes, uh, which is apparently that's, it's good. Like just a small space when you, when is not, it's not overwhelming. Like these are designed in a way that to help yeah. with maximum rehabilitation. Well, it goes hand in hand with minimalism too, right? Like the yeah. less stuff and clutter you have around you. The, the less clutter is in your mind, right? So exactly. I, I yeah, that's, that being that's the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is addressing, uh, it's a thoughtfully designed program that's treating a subsection of the homeless population. So the veterans, again, they're not going to have the same experience. Some are going to have uh, battle scars and some are going to, you know, might not have served on the front lines, but are have uh, trauma from being in the military for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is recognizing that they have a unique subset of issues. And when you remove the homeless veteran population from our broader homeless population, then you, then more of these generalized programs start being more applicable. But I would say then if you could take a subsection of the indigenous community out too, and then within that, of course, you can divide that up many times. For sure. Um, and uh, there, and, and so, the, I mean, there's many ways to divide up a population, but when, as much as we can to, provide a targeted specific program I think we should look into that because I think we'll be more effective with our programming mm-hmm. and ultimately our objective of rehabilitation yeah there would be commonalities within subsets of populations but also shared experience so if you are handling a group of people with similar experiences that will help in their rehabilitation too right yeah. the ability to to look around the room and say I relate to these people I, I went through the same things right that's a good point and actually uh, moving away from the homelessness discussion just with PTSD we're Traditionally, uh, police weren't really thought of as possibly of having uh, that disease disorder, and um, more so firemen, firewomen, uh, paramedics, EMS, all emergency room staff, uh, the nurses. But if you're exposed to trauma, you're exposed to trauma. So it's not just uh, being on the front lines in a in a battle. It's important to recognize that many people suffer. And just before we started recording, we're talking about uh, you have a bit of a. Uh, you have some connections to people trying to get into the fire department and, and know some people in it. And I was saying I was a few minutes late for this interview because I was surprised <laughs> when some firemen stopped me when I was getting a coffee. And they're like, hey, are you John's attic? And I usually don't get recognized. But it's, uh, 
I like to support all our emergency services when we can and recognize mm-hmm. that they have unique needs and very common needs too. And yeah. any first responder, uh, we should we should really recognize that they're tending to the stuff that we don't want to tend to. Mm-hmm. And we hire them for that reason, but we need uh, compensation is not is not sufficient. They need uh, we need to show them respect when we can. Yeah, that's a really interesting question of like. So I I say like that the average citizen doesn't realize the trauma that a firefighter, for example, experiences. And I know this based on firsthand stories that I've heard. They say, oh yeah, that's an average day or that's an average week. That these are the things I've seen. Mm-hmm. Gr- some of them are gruesome and grotesque and 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 would traumatize the average person for the rest of their lives potentially but these people are going through it so it's an interesting question of like the average citizen doesn't acknowledge that firefighters are going this because they don't know it and then because of that firefighters are getting treated as like oh yeah you guys are doing great work but you know they're not getting treated like oh my god like i can't believe you've done all these things like it's almost like i guess what i'm trying to ask in a really convoluted way is like is naivety positive in some sense of like not really realizing how messed up the things you're going through really are to the average person like you almost your your baseline gets reset to to a more accepted level of trauma and because people aren't constantly bringing up how traumatizing your job is does that make it easier in a sense yeah it's that's a tough question and a lot of people in these professions are quite humble and uh, they don't want to come home and talk to their partners about some of the stuff they've seen, but uh, as much as you could think how gruesome a, a murder scene could be, I think it's much, much more common that they're arriving uh, to see a, the aftermath of a suicide. Mm. And there's either blood associated with that or just a dead body and then possibly, you know, and then if the family's discovered that, then you have people just weeping uncontrollably. Mm-hmm. And then you have to be a stoic figure that's there. And uh, I mentioned that sort of like a bit of a medical emergency and uh, with the discussion for for our firefighters because it's often they're the first on the scene when you phone 911 you know a bunch of different groups are dispatched but it's often so the firefighters are not just fighting fires is, is my point and when you see the depths of human uh, I don't know if depravity is the right word but the, how we can go pretty low and uh, and we can also achieve great things but to be numb to seeing dead bodies or or people that are barely hanging on after a car accident that are just weeping uncontrollably if their legs are crushed uh, they know life will never be the same uh, it's quite uh, I have nothing but respect for these people that that do this type of work and mm-hmm. but with their pride and their collective what I like about paramilitary organizations is shared identity mm-hmm. and I know um, this is not going against uh, the individualistic talk as I was talking about, but being part of a community, like so you're either part of a, a neighborhood, like just talking from a geographic perspective, or your work community. And I think it's important that everyone gets along with their, their colleagues, which, quick digression, I wish, uh, you know, on council sometimes we're, we're not our own best friends. Um, I, and I know we're working to, to try and be better and more supportive to each other. But it... For those that are in a fire department, there's the different uh, companies within it and platoons it's, and the different shifts and people that ride on the different trucks. Um, and then everyone has their own little task, like when they're not responding to an emergency, you know, one person would be polishing this and another person would be cooking them lunch. And there's a great respect for what you can learn from your colleagues and the support that your colleagues can provide. And... Uh, I, I just think that in some of these paramilitary organizations, there's uh, that desire not to speak. Like, you keep it to yourselves. Mm-hmm. And hopefully not in an unhealthy way, like you drink with your buddies. Like Traditionally, that's what the legions did yeah. uh, to address PTSD for soldiers, is you would go drink it, it away with, with like-minded veterans. But now, uh, there's, there's more emphasis on uh, mental health through, uh, through diet and fitness and talking about it. And to the extent that that can be solved, resolved within the workplace, uh, hopefully then when you get home, you can you can talk with your partner yeah. about sort of your life goals together and not always just bring uh, bring all the baggage of your job home. Yeah, the only way to really face trauma or to deal with trauma is to face it, right? Yeah. Like you can't bury it because it's just going to be unresolved um, issues in your, in your memory and that, that can go on to affect you for the rest of your life. 
like I you really have to like I always use the example of a breakup. You have to feel the pain of a breakup to really get over the breakup. <laughs> yeah. You can't just go on a bender and start sleeping with whatever comes your way and drinking your face off. You have to like sit at home by yourself in those sad moments and 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 think about it and reflect and and and, and try to try to use your memory to co- you know construct a new model of behavior going forward that's not gonna that, that's gonna lead to a better result than what you've done in the past. Yeah, I, I really like what you just said there, and it's it's all about that quiet reflection and. Um... And, and just thinking about how you can change your conduct in the future. Uh, not that it might not have been your fault for whatever happened. Uh, usually with a breakup, it's always the other person, I, I think, anyways. But if we said, hey, maybe <laughs> it's my fault, maybe we'd all get a little farther. Um, oh, yes, yes. I want to be respectful of your time, Counselor, but I, I also want to quickly talk about um, your ward, Ward 3, and, and so yeah. what exciting things are going on there that, uh, that you'd like to talk about and, and kind of shed some light on. Yeah, so I've been quite pleased that I think I've completed – all of my campaign promises uh, within the first year, but it's sort of, I didn't really have an enumerated list of campaign promises too, so it's kind of hard to say that like I, I got them all, but I got the honorary renaming of 97th Street to Canadian Forces Trail, so it's mm-hmm. an optional use of that name. It leads to the Canadian Forces base, so mm-hmm. uh, the veteran community likes that. Um, I wanted to bring a, a festival or some kind of large event to the north side, and so through my Top of the City Soccer Festival, which is uh, admittedly still a work in progress we need to get the numbers higher for for next year which will be our third year but we uh, were playing soccer around the clock for 36 hours so we had outdoor lights uh, floodlights uh, on a, just a regular field a lot of people like that sort of stadium feel like mm-hmm. not everyone gets to play under the lights for so sure. it's quite special yeah yeah play like the pros feel like the pros right <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and uh, a lot of my constituents are really into soccer. Personally, I'm not a sports guy to begin with. And if I'm going to pick the sports that I'm going to be interested in, soccer would be lower on the list. But that's uh, <laughs> but that's something that a lot of my constituents want. Um, there's some stuff that I've been able to do for the Ukrainian community, which is nice. Mm-hmm. I have uh, something planned for the Lebanese community that's going to be pretty exciting. Uh, mm-hmm. Don't actually want to let the cat out of the bag on that first. But okay. in terms of... Um, Sort of because I mentioned campaign promises, you know, I've I've made some tough choices on council voting against some very nice projects that are just a bit too expensive for my liking, and mm-hmm. um, I've done what I can to really uh, fix up sort of like local improvements, local uh, addressing concerns with uh, right. like getting. There's this segment of road that's um, incomplete. I'll show you on a map here, but it won't do much for your <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Uh, so we're just working to complete neighborhoods and, yeah. and fix them up and just and try and generate some local pride and, mm-hmm. and I really try and emphasize the north side whenever I can mm-hmm. my goal is to see more businesses there and more people taking pride and mm-hmm. uh, it, it's a diverse population right like yeah. you've got is it would it be one of Edmonton's most, most ethnic neighborhoods or wards I don't know it depends how you would define that because there's Mill Woods would definitely rival uh, this area of town but it's just people settle for historic reasons around uh, members of their community or where there's cultural compatibility, but mm-hmm. it's definitely not, I mean, the city of Edmonton, it's a small city overall, and I think that we're all richer with having all these different cultures, um, but I think there's more, the difference really is the north side, south side mentality, and I say this as someone that came from out of town, and I always lived on the north side, and I always worked downtown, and I always... Um, all my colleagues were always like, oh, when are you going to move to the south side? I'm like, well, I'm happy where I am. Yeah. And and then I noticed that when I was starting to date girls, they were always from the south side, as it turned <laughs> out. And then it was, yeah. <laughs> and, and I don't know what it is. And also, there's something informally that I would call sort of the north side brain drain, is like when people get successful jobs, unless they have reasons of family to stay on the north side, mm-hmm. And I'm all for people moving to different areas of, of the city and exploring. It's a completely different experience when you get up after 10 years and move to a different part of the city. But mm-hmm. it seems that, you know, the for a lot of successful Northsiders, the the route or the career path is you get a, a job that starts paying a bit more and then you can afford a, a bigger house on the south side somewhere. Mm-hmm. So in the spirit of complete communities and all that, I, I think that we should have some higher end options on the north side to mm-hmm. retain people that, that are looking for that kind of thing. And also just uh, a, a whole mix of housing options, employment options, all that. And uh, and there's there's definitely a subculture of just being a, a Northsider. And 
I think it's healthy and I want to embrace that and I think that Edmonton as a whole will be stronger when there's with like a healthy rivalry it's just like within Alberta there's the Edmonton Calgary rivalry right. yeah. I think like as much as we play around with that a bit um, it just it emphasizes that there's differences in the two cities more than just geography and within a city there's it's perfectly reasonable that there's also a, a cleavage of such as that so these groups shouldn't be played off each other uh, and what's frustrating is I was accused of doing that during the election, but I, I, I don't know if we have uh, enough time to get into that. But I would just say that my goal with the North Side, and I always talk about the North Side, is like I'm, I'm very proud that I, mm-hmm. I've always been on the North Side since I've been in Edmonton. I've observed the dynamic, um, and I'm doing what I can to promote this part of the city while, while recognizing that it's one part of Edmonton. Right. Yeah, it's never the at the expense of another part, right? Yeah, it's it's you know this is a great a great link in in the you know the whole or the cog in the machine that is Edmonton, right? Every neighborhood should play its part, and every neighborhood should have something that it can be proud of. And and but I mean, you can break down the groups to any level, right? Are we all Edmonton, North Side, South Side? Are we all Edmontonians? Are we all Albertans? Are we all Canadians? Like, there's always going to be a greater group that we can identify with. So I think it's it's important to have those identifying characteristics where it doesn't matter what all your other characteristics are like in the u.s you know the constitution is you know you know the, the right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness it's yeah like the, those are the identifying traits of being american it doesn't matter if you're an immigrant it doesn't matter where you yeah. come from it doesn't matter what your race religion sexual orientation is as long as you can, we can agree on these fundamental things everything else is moot I agree, and it, I like how you brought it back full circle. Um, in many ways, this speaks to sort of the different groups that we find ourselves in, and also overarching identity. And to your question about what's the Canadian identity, um, I don't know if you if you have an answer yet, because I'd be I think most of Canada would be interested to know. But I do think we need more stuff to bind us mm-hmm. together nationally. More than hockey and Timmy's. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, and let's face it, uh, Tim Hortons is owned by a Brazilian company. And it's garbage coffee. I, I know. to say it. I mean, Timbits I... are great, but the coffee is garbage. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Timmy's. Uh, Counselor, I appreciate it. As You know, we recorded for over an hour, so I want to uh, be respectful of your time. But this was really fun. I really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, you know, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, it's, it was my pleasure. So, Well, if we have uh, time down the line for round two, we should definitely do it. For sure, Shane. Yeah. And there's so many uh, topics that we could do- dive into much deeper, and I look forward to those conversations. All right. Thanks again. Hope you guys all enjoyed that episode with Counselor John Zadik. Uh, huge thanks to him and his team for making the time for me. Last thing for today, guys. ATB knows that being an entrepreneur and business owner has its challenges including finding time to get the help that you need. That's why they've created their entrepreneur centers, which are now coming to a community near you. With new pop-up locations each month, ATB is bringing their 360-degree entrepreneur support service to you. So whether you're dreaming, building, or growing, you can access a powerful set of tools to help your business and personal finances all grow together. Visit albertaentrepreneurcenter.com to find out where they are popping up. Thanks again, guys. Hope you all have a great week and we'll see you next time.